All right, we are continuing in our Imperfect Together series this morning uh, with scripture from the book of John, verses one, one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's word. Thanks, Cindy. Yeah, I want to give a plug for Alpha and Rooted as well. Those two classes, those two groups that we're getting ready to start up are going to be really fun. Uh, myself and, and another are going to be leading that. Cindy's also going to be a part of uh, Alpha. Uh, that's, again, for those of you who are trying to figure out the Christian faith. Maybe you've never made a decision before and you just have a lot of questions. It's all about creating a safe place, a culture of, hey, we're just going to have conversations around what we bring to the table. Uh, so we hope that you would you join us, or if there's somebody in mind, like a friend, family member in the area that you think would really benefit from that, uh, please send them our way. We'd love to talk, uh, talk with them and have them join us. Uh, last year when we did it, uh, not only was the content and conversation really fun, but I was, uh, I, was, I was delightfully surprised with how much the group became like family. In fact, to those of you guys who are Alpha from last year, I'm going to miss seeing you guys as, as regularly, um, but, but many of you are still a part of the, the church family, so I'll continue to see you that way. Uh, and then Rooted is for those, again, as Cindy just mentioned, who have firmly made a decision, I am following Jesus, I'm trying to figure this out. And so those are going to be going through just seven or so core elements, core essentials of the faith. So a lot of new things. And then for those of you guys who have been following Jesus for a long time, or just you want to get into a more Bible study based on kind of, uh, you know, material that we just face, uh, that we look at together based on the sermon text, uh, current groups are, are for you as well. Um, so I hope you can, you can find something that works for you. Um, well, today we are continuing our vision series, Imperfect Together, considering how God uses imperfect people to extend His perfect love. And last week, we kicked it off with, with a message I entitled, The Imperfect Church. And we looked at this enormous claim in Ephesians 3 that says that it's His intent, that is God's intent, to now make His manifold wisdom known through the church. Uh, God's manifold wisdom, His perfect love, His beauty, uh, is being made known through the church. Uh, which in some senses might seem very laughable, at least on the surface. But what we saw in, in digging into uh, Paul's words there in, in Ephesians uh, a little bit further is that God does this not by overlooking imperfections in imperfect people, uh, making his, his perfect love made uh, known by overlooking those things, but actually often precisely through the imperfections and the brokenness uh, that, that we have. He makes his perfect love made known. Well, today we're going to continue... Uh, and pick up from there and narrow the focus a little bit, because if we just left it there, we'd, have, we'd be left with a number of questions. Well, what exactly does that mean? What does that look like? How do we go about doing this in community? Well, the scripture that was just read for us today from, from John's gospel account there in chapter 1 is so rich in this regard. Uh, and, it, and there's perhaps no more profound pattern to consider when it comes to thinking about growing in the faith with God, growing in a relationship with God, and growing in relationship to one another, imperfect as we are. Uh, listen again to this text, and we're really going to be focusing in on verse 14 of John 1. The Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, and here it is, here's the pattern, full of grace and truth. 
Uh, one Christian author put it like this, here we see a two-point checklist of Christ-likeness. A uh, two-point checklist, if you will, of how we can grow in our relationship with God and with others, and that is to seek to be filled with grace and truth. And as we do this, uh, we will experience and we will extend His perfect love. Uh, so let me pray, and then, and then we'll jump into it further. Father, thank You for all the exciting things happening in the life of the church today, uh, the launching of these groups, the group sign-ups today, uh, these two new groups that we're getting ready to do with Alpha and Rooted. Uh, thank you for what's going on just a couple of blocks from where we sit today uh, on Castro Street at the Art and Wine Festival. Father, thank you for those who are out there serving right now. Lord, would you help them be uh, not just our, but, but your light, uh, your hands, your feet. Um, and would you do a wonderful thing there in the community. Thank you for placing us here in Mountain View, in this neighborhood. Would you help us minister here? Uh, love and serve our community well in your name. Uh, and Father, as we look now at your word, would you fill me, fill each of us with your spirit. We long to be touched by you and changed, transformed by your working. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, grace and truth, that's what we're talking about today. So let's first define our terms, okay? So we're all on the same page. When we say grace, what we're saying is unmerited favor. Uh, grace deals with love, compassion, mercy, acceptance. And when we say truth, we mean a faithfulness to a standard. Uh, truth deals with justice and law. Uh, truth deals with obedience and righteousness to that standard. Uh, truth says there's a standard that needs to be upheld. Grace says you are loved and accepted regardless of that standard. So which is it? You know, for Christians, which, which one do we do, grace or truth? I think you see where I'm leaning with this. It's not one or the other. It's both and. It's, it's both grace and and truth. Christ followers are not called to be 50-50 on this grace and truth thing. We're supposed to be 100-100, all grace and all truth all the time. We're called to be this as a church, imperfect church that we are. This is what we seek to be at current, filled of grace and filled with truth. Uh, but what does that mean? What does that look like? Uh, one way to start getting our minds around this is to think about the statement that we say every single week. In fact, Cindy said it just moments ago. Uh, welcome to Current. We are a community following Jesus together, and you're welcome wherever you're at spiritually. Uh, by this statement, we mean you are welcome here. There's no secret handshake. Uh, come as you are. If you have doubts, if you're wrestling through things spiritually, if you're wrestling through brokenness, you are welcome here. If you're a flawed person, if you're a quote-unquote sinner, join the club. We're a community following Jesus. You and I and you're welcome wherever you are, wherever we are on our spiritual journey. That's what we mean by this. But by this, we don't mean anything goes or how we live is up for grabs. And part of that is captured in the statement, we are a community following Jesus together. So therefore, when we say you and I are welcome wherever we're at spiritually, we mean this how Jesus meant this. At least that's how we try to be uh, as he lived in the fullness of grace and truth. Jesus was all grace. He welcomed sinners and tax collectors and, and the prostitutes, whom all of society back then just despised. He ate with them, spent time with them. Uh, Jesus had compassion on the crowds when they were hungry and far from home. Jesus healed the lepers, the lame, the blind. Uh, Jesus saved even the criminal on the cross who in his dying breath recognized that he didn't live a good life and acknowledge that Jesus was truly the Son of God. 
Jesus was all grace. Jesus was all truth. Uh, He condemned many of the religious leaders of his day for being outright liars and hypocrites. Uh, Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. Uh, He called all those who would be his disciples to take up their cross daily and follow him. He prophesied judgment on unrepentant hearts. He obeyed the law, set standards, and demanded everything from his followers, even their very lives. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and uh, truth, all grace, all truth, all the time. And we see this throughout his entire ministry with all of his interactions with folks that he just came across that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, There's this one time, I think captures this so, so well, uh, this tension that he lived in so beautifully, so perfectly. When he was in the temple courts, a woman was brought to him who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, why the guy, why the dude wasn't also brought, uh, that that begs the question. But be that as it may, uh, here, uh, this woman was placed in front of Jesus, and this mob was just ready to stone her, uh, which was essentially the crime, uh, excuse me, the punishment for the crime back then. Uh, this lady was, was therefore likely naked, ashamed, scared for her life, and this mob was just reeling to throw these rocks that they had already picked up and were ready to throw. And with just one phrase, Jesus dispersed the crowd. Just one phrase. And imagine, even if you haven't grown up in the church or read the Bible all that much, you might have heard this phrase before. It's a very famous one. Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And what happened was one by one, uh, each person with their stone began to drop it and walk away. Um, And Jesus was left there with the woman, and he asked her two questions, two questions. He asked her, where are your accusers, and has no one condemned you? And no doubt she's confused, she's shaken. She responds, no one, sir. And here are the gracious words of Jesus to her in that moment neither do I condemn you. That is grace. That is unmerited favor. Uh, Many of you, you need to hear these words today yourself. Uh, Maybe you have done something wrong. Maybe you have people who are ready to stone you, so to speak. But Jesus stands here ready to receive you, not to condemn you. That is the graciousness of God, His love in His grace. But Jesus doesn't just leave the woman with grace. He then adds truth. And and calls her, invites her to a standard. For he then goes on to say, go now and leave your life of sin. In other words, I don't condemn you, but I call you and I invite you into something different and better. Which is really important for us to understand. Because moments ago I just said that, hey, you know, we need to hear that God's words to us are grace. And that's absolutely true. God is here not to condemn us, but to receive us. It's unmerited favor. But what we also need to hear is that He didn't just come to wash us clean of our sin, but to also save us out of a life of sin, uh, into a life of righteousness, a new life that we can begin to live with the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's not just about being cleansed and let loose to do whatever we want to do, but it's a salvation from our life of sin into a new life as well. It's both. It's both grace and truth. But chances are, based on our upbringing or our personality or whatever, uh, we are predisposed to view God in one way over the other, I imagine, uh, and probably also have a propensity in this to highlight one in our relationships over, over the other. 
Um, so how does grace and truth impact our relationship with God and our relationship with each other? Let's, let's look through these uh, in, in part. So first, how does grace and truth uh, impact our relationship with God? It's important to understand that God loves us through and through with His grace, and He loves us through and through with His truth. Uh, by way of illustration, there's perhaps no uh, harder role to play in this life, no more challenging role than being a parent. We've had a string of new babies at Current, which is really fun. And I caught myself asking one of these couples of just a very, you know, new, newly newborn. I asked the question I thought I'd never ask after, after having been a dad of a newborn. I said, how are you guys doing? <laughs> Immediately when I asked, I was like, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I was like, oh, why? They looked at me like, <laughs> like I looked at people when they asked me that question when I was just with the newborn. I was like, are you kidding? I'm dying. Like, that, this thing needs to feed like every two hours and I'm not sleeping at all. And I was just like, once I asked, I was like, no, I've become that person I told myself I'd never do. It's, it's okay question to ask. I'm just, the point is, it's like, it's, it's obvious that they're in a trying time. But be that as it may, you know, as I've, you know, as my kids are now uh, seven and five, there are, I'm, I'm learning that there's more and more unique challenges as they grow. Uh, in fact, this, this last week, I actually ran into a good buddy of mine I hadn't seen in a while, and I was asking him about how his, student, how his kids are, are getting back into school, how that's working out for their family. And he said, well, our kids are now all in middle school and high school. He has four, all in high school and middle school. And he said, you know what? Never a dull moment around our house. <laughs> <laughs> and it was in that moment I was like, okay, I've been whining about having a seven-year-old and five-year-old no more, at least for this season, thinking about having four in, in middle school uh, as, a, as a former teenager myself. I was like, Lord bless you, friend. Um, but one of the greatest challenges of being a parent is holding essentially grace and truth in balance, right? And a lot of this comes in the form of being gracious and discipline, uh, holding, holding grace and discipline. Uh, there's a tension there, right, that a, that a good parent will seek to hold in tension. Uh, did any of you have or, or know of parents that were all about doting love on their, their kids? You know, probably didn't have really a disciplined bone in their body. They're just, they were all about just wanting you to like them and to be your friend. Uh, I wonder if you'd be surprised to know that I, over the years as a pastor, I've had many people come to me and share that actually when they've had parents like these, it's actually, they've, they've been... They've been uh, almost bitter about it, you know, complaining in their adult life, wishing that their parents had been more disciplinary with them, had taught them more about right and wrong, helped them learn uh, to do things, when, uh, what consequences are when, when hard things uh, happen, um, because they were feeling, man, they didn't shape me to be the people I needed to be. I had to learn a lot of things the hard way in life. They didn't prepare me for, for real life. Uh, the sad and ironic thing here is that there are many who, who wrestle with feelings of bitterness towards the parents who just want them to love them in this way. Um, but, you know, a few weeks ago when we were going through the book of Proverbs and looking at, you know, kind of family relationships, we saw there that Solomon even questioned the idea of, of parents who never disciplined their kids as if, whether or not they even love them. Because uh, loving comes with discipline. Um, on the other hand, did you know that uh, did you have a, a parent or know of a parent type who was all about discipline, you know, just whipping their kids into shape, hopefully without the literal whipping, but just whipping their kids into shape, just, just hard on them? Uh, you know, it doesn't take a lot of thought to really let that sink in, to know that, uh, you know, sure, the kids probably did get uh, a good sense of right and wrong, but often when that's the case, there's no real love felt there. Uh, there, there can be distance, maybe even hardly any relationship at all. 
Uh, it's, it's one of the things that makes being a parent so hard because a good parent will, will wrestle with this, of both you know, loving with grace and truth, with, with, with grace and discipline. Uh, listen to Hebrews 12 that talks about this in terms of how the Lord cares for us in this way. So Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 say, My son or daughter, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son or daughter. The message of Jesus is, and I've heard it said this way, come as you are and don't stay as you are. Come as you are, yet don't remain as you are. God loves you so much that he wants you to come as you are, and he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to stay as you are. Um, we, is grace and truth. After all, God is our father, not our grandpa. Uh, you know, I think a lot of us, we think of, we think of it in terms of God is our grandpa. Cindy and I, I joke about this from time to time, uh, saying that, you know, we believe we're going to live our best lives as grandparents, God willing. Because uh, being a grandparent, it's the best of all worlds, isn't it? It's like you get to all the closeness and intimacy with the child because you've, quote unquote, done your time. Uh, you can spoil them. You can do whatever you want with the kid. Uh, Cindy and I have experienced this on both sides of our family. <laughs> uh, my dad, it's awesome. My dad. Uh, there's, he does this thing when, now he has, I don't know, like 12 grandkids. I have a lot of siblings, so he has a lot of grandkids. And every time a grandkid has gotten to about the age of six months old, or, you know, all you need to know for this detail is well before they should be eating solids, okay? He'll just take baby at one of these family gatherings and just whisk them away and go off into the kitchen, all families over there, and feed baby chocolate ice cream. <laughs> like, that's his thing as a grandpa, it's, it's so funny, like, by the time this happened with Maddie, which, our, which is our second, I had gotten to the place where I was like, hey, where's Maddie? Hey, where's Grandpa? And I, I'm not, I, and I walk in like, ah, Dad! Like, <laughs> and Maddie's like, chocolate's amazing. Daddy, why didn't you give me this stuff? Is like what her eyes are, are saying to me. I used to be like, Dad, come on. And now I'm like, I'm totally going to do that. Because <laughs> grandparent is, is sweet. But could you imagine? Could you imagine if that's the only way God related to us? We'd be in a world of trouble. We'd be in a world of trouble. God isn't our grandpa. He's our father. And thank the Lord that he is. Because he extends us his grace fully, that we can come to him as we are, run into his arms, no matter what we've done. He loves us, and he extends us his truth. Again, because he loves us and cares deeply about the direction of our lives. You know, it's interesting, some commentators, they talk about this when a lot, a lot of times in the, in the Scripture, both back in the, the Greek culture and also the Hebrew culture, Old Testament and, and New Testament, they talk about the placing of, of wording. And when a word shows up first, there's usually a, a pride of place element to that. It's a little bit more important. Not always the case, but, but oftentimes. And what commentators point out is the fact that grace shows up first here. And they're like, the, the reason probably for that is because it's, there's, there's probably a bit of a surprising element to that. If you think about in this culture, the Jewish culture, or even the Greek culture back then, it was very much one of those things where it was probably more likely a truth-based culture. You know, they, you know, when it came to God's truth, they were like, I'm all about that. I understand that. That's important. By the way, there's parts of the world today that's all about God's truth side. And in fact, the grace side is scandalous to many cultures around the world. How could, how could God do that? 
Uh, so in some respects, we need to hear that, that grace comes first. It's a surprising element, especially back then. But it seems to me in our culture and today and age, the one we probably struggle with more, blanketly stating, uh, is probably the, the truth side of things. Uh, I think this is where we tend to struggle with things more. We struggle with the idea of a God that punishes sin, for instance, or, or, or God in His calling us to take sin seriously. Now, we like justice for sure, but when it comes to justice directed towards our actions, well, maybe not so much there. I don't know if I like that. Uh, Jesus is the one who said he is gracious and compassionate, as he also said about himself, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. We need God's perfect love in both ways. Uh, So let me just pause to ask before we continue to move here. Are there any areas in your life where you need to hear the words, I don't condemn you, and go and leave your life of sin? It might be in an area of your life where you've just determined, you know what, when it comes to following God, I'm going to do it in all these ways, but in this area or in these two areas, I'm just, you know what, I'm just going to do it my way. Or maybe it's following Him in an area of your life where the rest of society says, hey, go ahead and do that. You be you. But God's Word says something differently. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Christian pastor and author who was actually killed, martyred, standing up against Nazi Germany, he wrote in his seminal work, The Cost of Discipleship, how we need to be careful of this idea of cheap grace, is what he talks about. it. Cheap grace, that is grace without cost. Because God does not sit up in heaven and say, oh, you sinned, I forgive you. You know, like this big hand wave. Uh, that's not how it works. Uh, he does forgive us, but it was at great cost, actually at infinite cost to himself. Grace cost God nothing less than the life of his son. That's what the cross is all about. It, it's not about, hey, you're forgiven. Hey, you're forgiven, like Oprah. <laughs> you're forgiven. You need forgiveness. That's not how it works. Sorry, that's not in my notes. That's not. I'll <laughs> have to think about that one later. <laughs> we'll just keep moving forward. It's not like that. It's, it's, it, 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 it's not cheap grace. It cost him everything. In fact, Paul talks about this in his word. Uh, in writing in, I think it's about Romans uh, 6 or so, where he talks about, man, if we live our lives in relationship with God with this idea of, hey, we are forgiven, so we might as well. Paul goes so far as to say, do we, have we even put our faith in him? Have it, has it really sunk in what he has done for us, this grace? Because if it has, then we, there's no stronger motivation than to become and live in God's truth. And not out of guilt, by the way, but in a loving response to his goodness to us. Um, Here's how Bonhoeffer put it. He said, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. Another way of thinking about this is faith without actually living it out, or Christianity without discipleship, as it were, isn't actually a faith. Um, It's not enough just to receive God's grace. We have to, with his help, walk in his truth. And so for the Christians here, for Christ followers, I would ask these questions. How has your faith changed the way you live? Has it changed the way you live? Has it influenced, and how does it influence your decision-making process? Jesus at one point said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Um, Is there anything in particular that comes to mind, maybe even now, that you're like, yeah, you know what, man, maybe I have been holding him at arm's length. I do need to consider this and, and, and move in alignment with him. 
Uh, God loves us so much that He offers the fullness of His grace and His truth. Uh, second thought here is, how does this grace and truth impact our relationship with one another? Here's the key question I want to ask, and that's this. Which way do you tend to lean? You know, when it comes to grace and truth, I imagine most of us tend to be either more of the grace-type people or the truth-type people. You following me? Uh, again, whether it's based on personality or in, based on our upbringing or based even on the society in which we're raised, we tend to lean in one way or the other. So which way do you lean? Uh, Christian author uh, Kevin DeYoung came up with a great list of characteristics to help us kind of get a picture of the two, that is of grace people and truth people. And I want to go through this to see if we can identify ourselves. Is that all right if we go through this? And we'll start with the grace people because they'll be gracious as we go through this list. Let's start with the positives. Grace people are the best to be around because they accept us for who we are, as we are. They're very welcoming. They don't ruffle any feathers. They cut us a lot of slack. They are easygoing. But listen to what Kevin DeYoung says, grace people without truth can be like. While, while they're pleasing to be around, we wonder if they really like us or if they are just trying to be liked. They are tolerant, but they often do not know the difference between right and wrong or they don't care to line up one way or the other. Grace people can be cowardly. They often refuse to make tough decisions in life. They demand nothing from others and get nothing in return. Listen to this. They accept us for who we are, but they never help us become who we should be. Are you this type of manager? This type of spouse? This type of friend? This type of roommate? Here are the truth people. Again, let's start with the positives. They're easy to admire. They have convictions and principles. They believe in right and wrong. They set standards. They speak out against injustice, oppression, and evil. They can be well-articulate and well-spoken. But listen to truth people without grace. Uh, while they are loyal to their cause, we wonder if they are really loyal to us. They want to change us and make us better, but they don't allow for mistakes. They are quick to cast judgment on others. They make difficult decisions. Uh, decisions, but they also make life difficult for others and for themselves. Listen to this. They can be slow to forgive, that is, if they can forgive at all. They inspire us with their courage, but turn us off with their, their intimidation. Uh, are you that kind of manager, that kind of spouse, roommate, friend? Uh, listen to how DeYoung concludes. He says, if you are a grace person, you are most concerned about being loved. If you are a truth person, you are most concerned about being right even if it means being unloving, both have their dangers. Something is wrong if everyone hates you, and something is probably just as wrong if everyone loves you. Which way do you tend to lean? Which way might those closest to you say you tend to lean? God calls us to be filled with grace and truth in our relationships with one another. Here's how Paul put it in his letter to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians 4.15, he says this, In speaking the truth in love, we grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. Um, this is, in other words, one of the main ways we grow as Christians, or you can grow as a Christian, is when we are speaking truth in love. In fact, the, the, the uh, Greek there says literally, when we truth in love. Kind of makes that word into a verb. But notice, it's not just speaking truth, it's speaking truth in love. It needs to be grace and truth. This is one of the ways that the imperfect church is built up. So what might this look like? 
in our relationships with one another. Let's, let's get real practical. Uh, we're going to be doing, uh, talking about three ways. Uh, they won't be on the screen, so if you're following along with notes or whatever, that's, that's what we're going to do. So true thing in, lo- in love, number one, is not playing whack-a-mole. I've talked about this before. You remember that game in the carnival or in the arcade where you have the hammer and the, and the mole comes up and you just whack, and then when it comes up over here, whack, whack. Um, sometimes we can relate to each other in this kind of way. You know, you have an issue, all right, whack, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to let you have it. I need to tell you about something. I need, you to, I need to hold you accountable. I need to put you in your place. Uh, have you ever been with somebody or maybe somebody with you and, uh, you know, say someone said something, you said, man, that's really harsh, and they respond, well, they needed to hear it because it was the truth. It's like, that's not loving. <laughs> Necessarily. Sadly, so many churches suffer from this. Uh, they, they really cling to God's truth, but there's, there's often no love in it. Or they convince themselves that they're just going to go ahead and blurt it out and share, and that's the loving thing, but that's not necessarily true. What should this look like? Let's, let's go back to John 1, 14, our text. It says, the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Uh, this is so rich in meaning for us. Uh, it says that the living, holy Son of God came to be with us in relationship. That's the second thought. We need to be first in relationship with others. As we truth and love, as we're bringing grace and truth, we need to be in relationship. Jesus, for his part, didn't just dispense truth from on high. He entered into our lives, into our mess. He became known as the fr- a friend of sinners, not just lobbing truth bombs from afar, but you know, playing, playing that whack-a-mole game, but he got into the mess. He became known as the friend of prostitutes, the friend of tax collectors, which, think about it, that meant he didn't come in and just say, hey, before I can hang out with you guys, I need you all to clean up your sex lives, or I need you to clean up how you deal with money, and then I can hang out. By the way, he did this with his own disciples. Otherwise, the disciples wouldn't have hung out with him for too long. Peter, for instance, was incredibly racist. He was incredibly racist. And, and thank the Lord for, for Peter, you know, for Peter's, on Peter's behalf, that Jesus didn't say, hey, you need to clean that before we hang out. But you know what? Over the years, over the years, Jesus got into his life and got him to see what God was calling him out of in terms of that and changing his life. You look at Galatians 2, by the way. Paul, who writes a lot of these other letters in the New Testament, had to call Peter eventually out on it. He did that in relationship. Um, Jesus did with his disciples. He did this with all people. What was he doing? He was earning the right to be heard. Um, He was building a relationship so that he could speak these things that people, people needed to hear. Think of it another way. How many of you respond well when somebody out of nowhere says, you know what, you really shouldn't be doing that? You need to clean up this part of your life? You know, if we don't know them too well, our responses are, probably more times than not, is get lost. Like, I'm not, who are, who are you? Like, why would you say that? And yet, how much more helpful when people who really know us and we know truly, deeply love us bring things up gently, uh, in relationship, uh, we need to have bring grace and truth, and that happens in relationship. And today, there's no better way to get involved in that, practically speaking, than to sign up for one of the current groups. <laughs> Shameless plug. It works right here, though. This is, current groups are all about creating space where we can get into relationship with each other, to build these relationships so that we can be people that are filled with and offer grace and truth. 
Does this mean you're going to show up at a current group and you're going to be asked to bear all? You know, No, that's not what we're talking about. We're trying to set the table in relationship so that grace and truth might come as a result. The whole goal of current groups, by the way, is to foster Christ-centered relationships. And we, we do that by reading God's Word, hearing about each other's lives, praying for each other. But we want grace and truth to be a part of that too. We need each other in that. Uh, how does this look practically? We talked about not playing whack-a-mole. We talked about it being in relationship. Number th- three, check out this part of verse four. It says, the word became flesh. Now, allow me to, to geek out a little bit here for a second. You know, the Greek here is a very interesting word because Paul, excuse me, John, writing this account, uh, could have used other words here to make his point. He could have said the word, that is Jesus, took up a body. That's not what he says. He, said, he could have said Jesus became a man. He didn't say that. What he says is, the word, Jesus, became flesh. That's the word sarx in the Greek, um, which is a very interesting word because it refers to the human existence in its frailty and vulnerability. Are you following that? This is a picture of Jesus identifying us with, to such a degree that he made our fleshly weakness his own. Uh, isn't it a profound thought? How did Jesus bring the fullness of grace and truth to us? By becoming vulnerable. That's the third thought when it comes to becoming grace and truth. We need to be vulnerable in our relationships. You want to bring truth and grace, for that matter, into people's lives? We need to be vulnerable. Uh, You know, here's an insight that's kind of a Captain Obvious thought. If Jesus became vulnerable and he was perfect, how much more do we need? We need to become vulnerable when we are anything but perfect. Uh, One of the best ways that we can be helping others in their walk with the Lord or just in life in general is to become vulnerable, is to identify in our own weakness. Because the gospel, after all, is that each and every person, starting with Christians who should recognize us in our lives, each and every person is desperately flawed, desperately sinful. That's why Jesus says things like, don't judge. And if you judge your brother or your sister, it's almost as if you're saying, hey, look at that little speck in your eye you need to clean out when you in reality have a log in your eye. He's saying, be real careful, don't judge, because often when you do that, you have all these other issues that you're just choosing not to recognize or in denial or don't see for yourself. But the gospel says, no, 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 don't you dare judge in the sense of you need to understand first that you yourself, I myself, am deeply sinful and broken. We need God's working in our lives. And so, friends, how do we speak truth in love? It's often by saying, hey, this is how I've messed up in that sense. Or here's how I messed up in these other senses that, by the way, are also not very great. And I offer that to you. Um, we speak truth in love. Uh, here, here's what a lot of Christians can do. What we can do is we can decide which truths of God are more important. That's when we play the whack-a-mole game and we forget that we ourselves are deeply sinful and have all these areas in our own lives that don't measure up and we need God's grace for, not to mention His truth. So do we need truth? Absolutely, but we need truth in love. And that starts with looking at Jesus' model for us, who became sarks, that is, flesh, vulnerable, even though he was perfect. God wants us to speak truth. In fact, it's unloving if we don't speak truth. But it must be in love, in relationship, through vulnerability, with care, thoughtfulness, sensitivity uh, to each other. Because that's what we all would want ourselves. It's what we all need, love in grace, love in truth. And after all, this is the culmination of what Jesus did. Because I mentioned earlier that Jesus 
uh, did this in each and every one of his interactions with people as he came across them, as he healed people, as he touched people's lives, as he got into spiritual discussions, gospel conversations. He was doing it all throughout his life and ministry, but the culmination of all of this, of grace and truth, of course, was at the cross. Uh, Because it's at the cross that we see grace and truth meet so perfectly together. Because on the cross, Jesus died for the punishment of the sin we deserve. That's truth. That's justice. That's, that's the standard that he expects for us being, de- being demanded. Jesus didn't abolish the truth on the cross. He came to fulfill it on our behalf. And it was his grace that led him there, and it was his grace that kept him there for the sake of loving us the way he did. Indeed, it's this truth. I was reading this week Psalm 85. Uh, that was written a thousand years before Jesus. I can't help but think this is pointing towards the cross, to that very moment on the cross. It says in Psalm 85, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This is the gospel of Jesus, grace and truth in its fullness that he offers to us and that, in that as we receive it, we can make it available to others. So in, in wrapping this up, let me ask three questions. And really, this is just kind of uh, recapitulating things that we've been saying. First question, what would your relationship with God look like if you were to receive from Him the fullness of grace and truth? Um, If you weren't just grabbing hold of one over the other, but really grabbing both, uh, would it be easier for you to come to Him in prayer? Uh, Would it it force you to take sin more seriously? How, How would it change you? And second question, what would your relationship with others look like if you are able to love them in grace and truth? Would it help you to be more accepting and gracious towards others? Or would it help you to be committed to helping others become more the people they should be? And by the way, as I say that, notice I didn't say the people you think they ought to be, but the people God would want them to be, even as we need others in our lives doing the same. And then the last question, what would our church community and the Silicon Valley look like if we walked in the fullness of grace and truth? Could this church be a place where grace and acceptance reign, and where obedience and discipleship do as well, knowing Jesus and growing into his likeness. God loves us so much that he offers us nothing less than the fullness of his grace. And God loves us so much that he offers us nothing less than the fullness of his truth. And it's the same grace and truth that Jesus lived and died for us that we can receive from him and offer to one another, imperfect as we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for becoming flesh, vulnerable, and making your dwelling among us, entering into our mess. We have seen your glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we just say thank you. Thank you for this grace. Thank you for this truth that we just don't deserve. Or we don't, we don't deserve this level of care that you have in our lives, that you, would, that you would be our Father. So, Lord, we thank you for that. Would you help us to receive these things from you? And if we tend to hold on to one over the other, would, Lord, would you help us to see the beauty and love in the other? And, Lord, would you help us as a church family to offer this to one another? Lord, we desperately need your help in this, but we thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit in all of these things. So, Father... Thank you for bringing this imperfect church together. Would you help us continue to and better make your love known in all these things? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.